from Asia Society Switzerland. This is State of Asia. My name is Nico Lossinger. So for the last few months, we have brought you wide-ranging conversations on Asia with different experts, all in the lead-up to our flagship State of Asia conference. And last week, the conference finally took place in Zurich, and it was great. The conference started with what we call the State of Asia Address, a short assessment on where the region stands, delivered this year by C. Raja Mohan, Asia Society's Senior Policy Fellow in New Delhi. Now, Raja has of course been a guest on this podcast before, but his address in Zurich was so eloquent, it was so comprehensive, we felt it was worth sharing here in full. So without further ado, here is Raja Mohan, recorded live in Zurich on November 9 on the State of Asia. You know, I've been pinching myself last uh, 24 hours since I've been here. If I've come to Europe all the way, I mean, I would rather have talked about Europe, uh, you know, in a way, uh, Europe is in the middle of an extraordinary crisis uh, for the first time since the Second World War. I mean, um, though I make a living by writing and speaking about Asia, I'm deeply fascinated by and troubled by what's happening in Europe. But I own, one of my own conclusions this evening is what happens in Europe matters to Asia, and Asia will matter more and more to Europe. So I think we are here in a world where when we think about the Ukraine crisis, we also think about what's happening in Taiwan, what's happening in, in Asia. So I think we are in the same boat. And my sense is we're no longer two separate continents as uh, traditionally we, we come to believe. We're going to be a lot more interconnected. Uh, what happens in one part of uh, one theater is going to increasingly affect the other theater. And hopefully uh, we can learn from each other and we can also find ways of working together. Uh, what I thought I'll do in the next uh, 20 odd minutes or 25 minutes uh, is really to highlight four broad themes of what's happening in Asia. When I think uh, Asia has moved from uh, the triumphalism just a few years ago, but Asia is rising and uh, West is in decline. I mean, if you're in a, even a better mood, I mean, uh, uh, from that kind of a, a rhetoric, self-congratulatory, triumphalist moment, I think we've reached a point where a lot more somber reflection where we are, and that Asia's rise carries with it a number of problems. So I think we'll talk about that shift that has taken place in Asia. Second, I also want to break down a false paradigm that has grown. I mean, uh, both I mean, those in the East as well as the West, this is somehow between East and the West, this between Asia and Europe, or, you know, this has been a, a classic trope for many people in both the continents. But I want to I want to break that down and see the paradigm is a lot more complicated. This is not East versus the West or Europe versus Asia. Uh, there are many fault lines within Asia which intersect with what's happening in Europe and, and the West. So therefore, this is an interactive uh, dynamic that uh, I would like to highlight. A third aspect I want to talk about uh, is really the Asia's fragile institutions. I mean, we're getting close to having an alphabet soup, I mean, like Europe, but... Uh, we still, the quality of the institutions that we have are not the same. And uh, Asia remains, despite the proliferation of regional institutions, uh, it remains an under-institutionalized area. And I think that carries uh, with its own problems. And within all this, we, we're beginning to see tension between old institutions, 
like the ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and new institutions like the Quad or the Quadrilateral uh, Security Forum, the AUKUS and other forums that are, that are beginning to emerge. And the fourth part I want to talk about is really uh, to talk about the interconnections uh, between why Europe and Asia are going to be increasingly related to each other and some of the new ideas that we've been hearing from the U.S., uh, how it sees, if you read the national security strategy uh, the Biden administration has put out, it frames quite explicitly what the U.S. wants its Asian allies to do more in Europe, and it wants its European allies to do a lot more in, in Asia. And I think it is a, a, a that sense for the first time uh, in the U.S. Uh, that, that these two theaters must be imagined, just as the Indo-Pacific imagines two seas together, uh, we must also imagine these two continents uh, as as one single space uh, in which the new challenges uh, begin to begin to emerge. So let me start with the first theme, which is really Asia's rise. Uh, just even four or five years ago, I mean, shall we say, I mean, now we can say with some definitiveness, uh, since the arrival of President Xi Jinping, the sense that, uh, you know, the unbridled optimism about Asia's, uh, Asia's future. Uh, from that, I think we're beginning to hit a, a, a bit of pessimism today. Uh, because I think three broad factors have changed the structure of Asia's continuous rise and that the irrevocable, irretrievable rise of Asia was the framing uh, that that, that uh, had become so dominant. But if you look at Asia today, I mean, I think uh, Asia's rise uh, has been uneven. I mean, it is Asia did not rise all at the same time. Japan had risen, uh, began to rise in the 19th century. It asserted itself in the 20th century. Uh, then we saw the ASEAN, the four tigers, emerge as major economic forces. And then China's transformation actually uh, created conditions for extraordinary change. Uh, that, that is today in 30 years, it's the second largest economy uh, with the greatest influence on international economy uh, in the last uh, three decades. But that I think the way China's own uh, changes, we'll talk about it briefly, that it is producing a new uh, uh, pessimism about this rise and how this will play out. I think the three factors responsible for this transition from an optimistic phase to a pessimistic phase. One, uh, we have the return of the great power rival. For nearly 40 years, once Nixon went to China, US and China uh, became friends. Russia was never a big player in Asia. I mean, it was there in the Cold War. But I think the once the US and China came together, you had actually an extraordinary moment in Asia for nearly 40 years. Uh, these two giants were friends, economic partners, and this produced uh, a period of great stability, great prosperity uh, for the entire region. The region benefited from integration with, with China and the U.S. at the same time, and that's why you had the concept of Asia-Pacific, of this fusing of the, across the Pacific, as well as Asia's own internal integration uh, around, around China. But today, the U.S. and China and not on the same same side, and we're just at the beginning of a confrontation between the two major powers uh, between in, in Asia, and that is just the consequences are just beginning to unfold. And then China's own problems with the second and the third largest economies in Asia, with Japan and with India, have grown sharply. So therefore, you have for the first time a, a contestation between the major powers of Asia, and I think my sense is uh, this is going to be around uh, for, a, for a while. The other factor that is causing a big change in Asia is the, shall we say, second thoughts on globalization. Uh, that it was believed, I mean, until recently at least, uh, globalization was irreversible and it's only uh, history has ended, is all, all you needed was to simply do more of the, more of the same, that, that we're going to have more and more 
uh, globalization in the region. But today, I think that trend has, has reversed, certainly in the U.S., the way U.S. thinks about globalization. Free trade is a bad word in the U.S. Um, you don't hear much of it uh, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, China, which is the other country that, that had actually been a great champion of globalization. But it still talks the language of globalization. But Xi Jinping's strategy of dual circulation, of focusing more on the internal economic growth, has actually created a conditions for uh, a decoupling, shall we say. I mean, this decoupling is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a very, very long time. But the fact is, uh, whether you see in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, new movements that are coming, whether the Chinese attempts at self-reliance or the American attempt at denying technologies, all those factors are today beginning to play. So I would say then, renewed great power rivalry, second thoughts on globalization, and China's inward turn, uh, together I think have produced a, a different moment uh, in, uh, in Asia's rise, and, and we'll have, dealing with it is going to be uh, one of the major challenges for us. The second, I mean, the second factor uh, on the East versus the West paradigm, that uh, more than 100 years ago, I mean, a Japanese writer called Okakura Tenshin uh, wrote about Asian ideals. I mean, the first sentence of the book, I mean, I see a lot of writers here. I mean, at least when you write a book, you want to do sentence like this. The first sentence of his book was, Asia is one. Just three, three word sentence. Asia is one. The imagination as Asia began to liberate itself, began to get a sense of its own self in the beginning of the 20th century. The, the idea that Asia had so much together and they were... It was the other of the West, and that Asia had natural tendencies to come together. So this was a great idea that, that captivated much of Asia. But like all great ideas, I mean, uh, it, the reality was something different. Uh, for all the aspirations of Asian unity, Asian solidarity, ideas that you continue to hear, even from our friends in China uh, who talk about Asia for Asians, what you have is the, the inner fault lines of Asia never disappeared. Unlike Europe, where nationalism is a bad word, I mean, Asia, I think we wear our nationalism proudly. All of us, not just China, I mean, everyone is nationalist in, 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 in Asia. This idea that, that you can simply, you know, that Asia was going to come together, uh, whether it was the immediate aftermath of colonial moment, that didn't work out. In the last 30 years, it looked like finally what the early leaders like Nehru or Sukarno or Mao Zedong could not achieve, ASEAN in its simple ways, shall we say, uh, fairly, you know, routine, humdrum activities of economic integration. Uh, we're going to produce a, a regional Asian unity uh, through trade and economic integration. Uh, but what we saw seen is that really that is beginning to break down thanks to the return of uh, territorial nationalism. Lenny talked about, uh, you know, the the case in uh, International Permanent Court of Arbitration, where the Chinese claims on the South China Sea were rejected unanimously on every count that China had put forward. But of course, China said, look, uh, this is, sorry, I mean, I don't accept this process. This is our historic rights. This is not judiciable by courts or somebody else and the very process they have rejected. And I think this, this, this nationalism, today we see the same thing in the Himalayas. And they're not, China is not the only one nationalist. I mean, China and Vietnam have problems. Japan and Korea have problems. Vietnam and Cambodia have problems. So this, this, the nationalist contestation, territorial disputes, the idea that we can keep them below the surface and we can work together. There was some progress, but in the end, I think today, those contestations are here to stay and those have not disappeared, making it difficult to 
to develop the idea of Asia as one. Then there is the biggest factor today. Well, Xi Jinping talks about Asia for Asians. Uh, then some of us, you know, who have problems with China, we say, hello. Uh, this is, you want to construct hegemony, that you framing your desire for dominance of Asia in terms of universal interest of, of Asia. Just as Japan did. It's really virtually a copy of what Japan did in the 1930s of liberating Asia from Western colonialism. And that Japan would bring Asia together. But then it was linked to the imperial ambitions of, of Japan itself. So we've seen this story before. And I don't think everyone simply buys in, though it has an attractive slogan of Asia for Asians under the leadership of China. Japan doesn't accept it. India does not accept it. Vietnam does not accept it. So this is today the, that a China that was, say, assuming China had been like Switzerland, I mean, just was interested in making money or building an economy. But China wants to be a great power. It wants to be a leader of the region. It wants to be a champion of uh, what it sees itself, its role as a great power. So I don't think anybody can grudge China the troll. But then once that ambition has been expressed, others are going to react against that ambition. And that's what we're beginning to see, a backlash against uh, Chinese attempt at constructing an order uh, in which it will nudge the Americans out and that it will dominate Asia and that we're simply going to love this because... It's an Asians dominating Asians. Uh, I don't think Asia is really ready for it, just as Europe was never ready for Europeans dominating Europeans. That brings me to the, the third set of issues, uh, which is really Asia's institutions. Uh, uh, as I said, look, Asia now has a lot of institutions, uh, ASEAN and ASEAN-centered institutions, ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit. We have a large number of these, uh, these forums uh, in, the, in the region. But really, those institutions are under real pressure today because of the factors I mentioned earlier of the return of the great power rivalry and the pressure on economic globalization and the resurgence of territorial nationalism. So ASEAN's success came at a time when China was not in the game. India had turned its back on the region and the US, you know, after the Vietnam War, was quite happy to let ASEAN take the leadership and construct a regional forum. And U.S.-China economic integration, as I said, produced conditions under which ASEAN could emerge as a platform on which the region could talk to itself and generate regional institutions. But the problem is today a rise of China and its assertiveness are beginning to put great pressure on ASEAN. Uh, ASEAN is not united. I mean, all of us say ASEAN centrality. That's part of the mantra, of course. You have to say it. Uh, but if, it, if there was no, that's also partly true, that if there was no ASEAN, we would have to invent it. But the fact is, when you have a strong power like China, which is, has its claims on the, on territorial issues, has its aspirations to dominate the region, which I think put enormous pressure on ASEAN. And when you have a strong power, the cracks within the ASEAN are, are today real. I mean, whether we accept them or not, but they're there. And that is beginning to happen. The fact that ASEAN can't support Philippines on the question of territorial uh, claims, I mean, against uh, where there was a clear rule of law, I mean, that has been established. But I think the power gap between China and ASEAN, I think, produces a, a situation where it becomes increasingly difficult for ASEAN uh, to really uh, to stand up uh, for its own members. Forget for the for the rest of the world, for the order, uh, for its own members. So I think there are there are problems. So what we've seen happen in the last few years, uh, that is, with the, uh, the creation of new institutions with American members in it. I mean, the, the the quadrilateral forum, which was kind of revived in 2017, with U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. Now we have the AUKUS. The English are back in the east, and uh, you have Britain, France, Britain, UK, 
uh, and uh, sorry, UK, Australia, and uh, US uh, having new alliance on uh, submarine technology and other defense technologies. So suddenly you have actually new forums, and ASEAN is very upset whether these new forums are going to undermine the centrality of ASEAN. But my sense is these forums are not going to disappear. Uh, these forums are trying to do what China does, what ASEAN does not do. That is, uh, finding ways to deter China, uh, to limit Chinese capacity for expansionism in the region. Therefore, you have new forums, uh, which I think produce conditions for uh, a, a, a more, uh, shall we say, fragmented institutional structure uh, in the region that is, that is beginning to happen. We also have multiple economic mechanisms in the region. Uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership uh, was supposed to bring much of the region, uh, you know, the ASEAN 10, uh, plus China, plus South Korea, plus uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and India. So 16 countries coming together to form this single economic block. But India uh, uh, walked out of it uh, at the end of the negotiations a couple of years, three years ago, uh, essentially citing, you would have heard this argument in UK and uh, in the US, that the Chinese uh, dominance in the manufacturing was beginning to hollow out India's own manufacturing capacity. And that India as a large entity cannot simply cede its uh, manufacturing uh, to China. And that China weaponizing this interdependence that has emerged in the region, we've seen some of that in the pandemic, has led to India walking out of this, uh, this, this agreement. And now the U.S. too uh, walked out of the CPTPP. And now U.S. is developing an Indo-Pacific economic framework. It's still yet to be fleshed out in detail, but there are negotiations that are starting. So the trade framework, this idea that you can have a single or one or two economic forums that will bring the region together, one within Asia and between Asia and the Pacific, that I think uh, is now uh, something uh, of the past. So, so there will be different economic forums. And if the current U.S. policies uh, on chips artificial intelligence and other things that begin to happen. Probably there'll be two separate cloud systems on which we're going to operate. There is going to be probably two internets. Uh, there will be a separation that was unimaginable uh, just a few few years ago. So, so therefore, we're looking at uh, in Asia that the idea of a single architecture for Asia uh, is not going to be with us. So what does all uh, this got to do about to, to Europe? I mean, how does Europe uh, figure in this? Uh, for many of us, I mean, I think uh, after the colonial moment came to an end, uh, Europe looked towards its own integration, certainly after 1990. It took some time to send the Europeans home. I mean, the Dutch were lingered on for a while, the French lingered on for a while, but eventually uh, Europe left Asia uh, and Americans stepped in to take care of the security or that became the principal focus of uh, uh, international relations of, uh, of, of Asia. And then we've had uh, a, a European integration post-1990. But now for the first time, I mean, at least some of us in a Asia are saying, look, we like Europe to come back, that, uh, that we can't produce a stable architecture in Asia without Europe's participation. That Asia is too complex, too big, even the Americans can't handle it, that, that we need the Europeans back in, in some form, not in a colonial form, of course, uh, but in a, in a different form where uh, Europe contributes to the security, stability, and prosperity of Asia in a, in a, in a different form, uh, at least for three reasons. I think uh, we, we need uh, Europe. One, uh, that a bipolarity between U.S. and China, that, that we don't want in Asia to be at the mercy of the goodwill of the U.S. political class uh, or of the Chinese Communist Party, that the two of them will decide what happens in the region. That having Europe there 
not as a third pole, but having as another actor that can bring in a measure of stability in this part of the world would be very, very welcome. Uh, I know Europe sees itself as, as an empire of norms. Uh, sometimes we mock at the empire of norms uh, because what's happening, you know, in, in many cases where Europe's contribution remains underwhelming. But today I think we need a normative support to deal with the Chinese expansionism or to frame at least some broad principles where I think Europe's moral weight, its uh, weight in setting standards, all those will be of value in constructing an Asia that will be, be stable and, and can look to the future with much far greater sense of assurance than, than we do today. And then we need to build uh, a, a lot of institutional linkages. And I think some of that is beginning to happen. Uh, it was Shinzo Abe, uh, late Shinzo Abe, uh, who actually saw, not only visualized the Indo-Pacific, the two oceans being connected, saw the importance of drawing in European powers into the Asia, into the Asian region uh, through the idea of actually engaging France and Britain, the two major military powers, into Asian security uh, issues. Then we saw, once the U.S. framed the Indo-Pacific, we saw more and more European countries beginning to uh, take interest in the Indo-Pacific. We've seen documents uh, come out from most countries in the, in the region. And most recently, uh, in spite of the Ukraine crisis, the last NATO summit actually invited Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, uh, and uh, to participate in the NATO summit. This is the first time Asian leaders were invited to participate uh, in, a, in a NATO summit. So I think this is where, as I said, look, the U.S. national security strategy talks about the interlinkage between the two theaters, and that we need U.S. friends and partners working with each other to be able to stabilize this region, especially because today China and the U.S. are allies, strategic allies, this idea that uh, China or Asians play no role in Europe, I mean, that is now no longer true. Uh, it was never true, actually. I mean, even if you go to the colonial age, I mean, I think the role Asia played in the intra-European conflicts, right from the beginnings of the colonial age, is, is, not, is always underestimated. But my sense is today, uh, given the, the crisis that is already in Europe and the crisis that is building up in Asia, uh, it is that integration, it is that connections between Europe and Asia, we need a lot more, uh, that we need a lot more interest in Europe to look beyond very confined provincial, shall we say, uh, approach to international affairs to one of taking greater interest in, uh, in Asia. And for Asia, uh, to work with European partners, because we cannot construct, as I said, a stable Asia uh, without the participation uh, of uh, European powers. And, and we can't simply leave this to the goodwill of uh, Washington and Beijing. So, so therefore, I would say that we're going to have a lot more to do with each other in the, in the years ahead. And I want to congratulate uh, Asia Society Switzerland. I'm a new, uh, newbie into the, into the family, but I'd love to keep working with, uh, with our friends here, with Europe, to see how we can build this agenda of getting greater awareness of Asia into Europe and drawing Europe uh, into Asia in a more sustained, integrated way in the years ahead. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. This was Raja Mohan, Asia Society's Senior Policy Fellow in New Delhi and one of India's leading foreign policy experts, delivering the State of Asia Address in Zurich on November 9. The entire video of Raja's address, including the discussion that followed afterwards, as well as all videos from our State of Asia conference, will be up on the Asia Society YouTube channel in a few days. The link to the channel is in the show notes. This concludes the first season of our State of Asia podcast. We will resume regular programming early next year, but might release some bonus episodes in between. So make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss a thing. 
our website is asiasociety.org Switzerland. This is also where you can find information on our many other activities and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. State of Asia is produced by Rem Kotanis and hosted by me, Nicolo Singer. If you want to support our work, please consider becoming a member of Asia Society Switzerland. All information is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. 